In the Thick of It, a Profit and Loss podcast with Colin Lambert and Galen Stobbs. Welcome to a special In the Thick of It podcast from Profit and Loss. My name is Colin Lambert. Uh, I am Managing Editor of PL. With me is John Ashworth, CEO of Kaplan. And we are broadcasting this on the eve of the Profit and Loss Digital Effects Awards for the single dealer platforms. So for the next 30 odd minutes, we thought we would have a front to back analysis and detailed analysis. You think you're confused by Brexit? We will clear up any confusion over the single dealer platform over the next 30 minutes, he said with fingers crossed, um, to basically preview the awards and also preview an interesting piece that John's penned for PL in this week's, uh, sorry, this month's magazine. So, first of all, John, welcome. Colin, thank you very much. Welcome, everyone, and, and uh, thank you for inviting me once more. More than welcome. Um, so what I thought we would do, actually, I mean, given I have the imagination of, uh, of, a, of a UK politician when, when charged with Brexit ideas, let's just look at this from a pre to post trade. Let's just go through the whole tr- whole workflow process. Um, I find it interesting when people, you know, I think we've moved on as an industry. We used to have this situation where everyone's like, we're connected to all these different places and we're doing this and we do that. Do I sense there's a more tailored connectivity culture out there now? Is this the sort of experience you're getting? Definitely. I think when technology first came along, everybody thought, oh, let's jump onto the bandwagon, let's connect, let's connect everything to everybody. There were some very positive reasons for the banks to want to do that um, because they wanted to get their own name out there and get pricing distributed as widely as possible. But there were also disrupting things that came along that made them have to participate. So no bank in the early zeros would ever thought they'd have to pay brokerage or a connection fee to a third party to access their very own clients. Um, but that's exactly what HREX and FXAll and N360T and CurrentX were inviting them to do. So that, yeah, there was a, a sense of, of multi-connectivity that they had to participate in. Um, and for reasons that we'll explore in the course of the next 30 minutes, no doubt, uh, the economic model now for banks is that they have to, of course, pay attention to regulation. Um, they've got to strip cost out of their operations. And for banks, that really means taking people out of their operations. Uh, so they're having to turn to technology. But there's also a new dawn uh, emerging, I think, um, green shoots of recovery post the moratorium around regulation, where banks are thinking, oh, now hang on a minute. What is, it, what is it we're really good at? What have we really got? And how can we take advantage of those things and optimize our distribution of our current uh, products and services and use technology to get those out there? Uh, and of course, as they contemplate the inevitable um, normalization uh, or homogeneity that comes around by participating in broader platforms, they're thinking, oh, hang on, we better we better be good at what we're good at ourselves and express our own identity. Uh, and in all cases, that means through some sort of website presence, whether it's a, a portal or a platform or some other form of electronic connectivity. I think it's also about the pricing as well. Um, something I mentioned in, in the podcast with Galen on, um, I think it would have been around the 7th of April, was I, I sensed a greater um, sense of optimism around the bank's EFX teams. Now, obviously, I'm very much focused at that top end of the tree at the moment. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from their ability to price and to risk manage better, um, thanks to improved data, which we've discussed in previous podcasts with you. Um, to your point about you know banks actually paying to connect to their own clients, I think it's quite interesting that what we've also got now is banks paying 
to access their own data um, that may have may on may have not been cleaned. From the perspective, though, of sort of you know this sort of pricing and connectivity, where do you see the banks sort of targeting their their work at the moment? You know, you're talking about a more tailored approach. What sort of areas do you think they should be looking at? Well, I think there are a number of number of shifts and trends and things which are informing the answer to that question. I think the first thing to say is that there is a huge emphasis now on targeting single dealer platforms or portals to the internal sales force. So the availability of technology to improve and hollow out current processes uh, is becoming very apparent. Um, And as I said, now that the regulation is sort of by and large has has been got on top of, um, people realize there's a whole load of things that can be done. And this gives rise to the thing you've observed, which is the uptick in optimism, confidence, funding, talent in EFX teams. Um, there's definitely a sense that necessity is the mother of invention. They have to do this to keep up, uh, but also they, it's the only way to continue to provide services economically. Um, the second point is that a positive impact of regulation, other than compliance and attention to the customer and all that sort of thing, is uh, it made people go around and figure out where the data was actually being warehoused. And in figuring out where the data was, uh, it also helped people understand what divisions of a bank owned what pricing for what segment of the customer. So it's perfectly possible for a second-tier regional bank to have three or four different prices that it would offer in an FX pair to the same customer. There could be the you know, over-the-counter FX product price, uh, there could be a corporate price, there could be a payment system price, or there could be a retail price. Uh, and the the activities that the regulation process made them go through unearthed quite a lot of information about where all this data was held. Uh, And as I've said on many times before in conferences and podcasts, the challenge was as much political and organisational in a bank as it was technical uh, to get all these things rationalised and and put together in one place. Where can the tech help with that, though? I mean, mean, is that something where technology can help is probably a better question, because I look at that and think, surely that needs a manager to actually do his job or her job. It does. um, But taking the example of um, commercial payments uh, themselves, um, in different parts of the the globe, the emphasis is more on the treasury providing those services to a customer or the commercial division providing those services to a customer. And what technology can do is effectively present the same screen offering the same service with an appropriate workflow uh, from different parts of the bank to the same single customer. So it's easier to do that, funnily enough, with technology once you've sorted out all the the workflows and the software engineering, which which isn't rocket science. Um, But but it's harder to do that if you're worrying about exchanging sales credits and who actually owns the relationship with the customer and who should be scratching who's back in terms of recompense for introduction fees and so on and so forth. Once you've sorted all that out, the technology makes the presentation of the price um, and the presentation of the, the hypothesis or the choices about the products or the prices that can be offered much easier and, and much easier then to receive that risk and, and do something with it on the other end of the, the trade. You mentioned the data piece of that, and I'm quite interested in this because um, absolutely the data has transformed how people you know, price and risk manage. Do you think we're actually using the data sufficiently enough to build our business segments further in terms of, you know, at the moment it strikes me that most of the banks I'm talking to are using data for pricing and risk management. They don't think about how is how can we actually approach this client 
a little bit better, a little bit differently? Um, you know, are we doing something with one client that would really work with another? Are there sort of trends emerging in that? Um, well, I think the, tr- the trends are exactly as you've identified. I think, firstly, um, the degree of sophistication of bank and the amount of, you know, well, the size and the sophistication of the data teams and the technology teams creates a spectrum where there are haves on one end and and and, and obviously have-nots at the very other end. Um, the very, very well-equipped and the very thoughtful people are doing exactly as you say. They're doing combination analysis. They're looking at portfolio analysis. They're looking at historical trading patterns, and they're using all those things possibly with um, semantic interpreters to look at market data events from unstructured data like news feeds and so on and so forth, Um, using all of that with artificial intelligence to come up with trading suggestions and, yes, genuinely looking to spot alpha opportunities. At the other end of the scale, however, um, there are people who have plenty of post-trade data lurking in the vaults but never actually look at it. Um, and the most common application for that data never actually being looked at is to look at customer price tiering. Um, it takes a huge amount of effort to set up price tiers in the first place, but relatively no work is done on readjusting and readjusting and readjusting and correlating and correlating and correlating to make adjustments to those things uh, to optimize you know, winning of trades given that most deals are in some form of competition, even if you're sticking mm. a price on the end of a single dealer uh, portal, um, that customer will be on the telephone to someone else or on the telephone to a payments provider uh, or, on the t- or, or indeed have another portal in front of them. So, you know, the competition exists in all forms. Um, and, yeah, in answer to the, the, the original point of your question, I, I don't think anything like enough... Um, work is being done at the bottom end to, to, to for people to help themselves. Then the other angle, of course, is, um, as you imply, sort of combination analysis and really understanding the, the bank's view of a particular customer. So what the fixed income desk knows about a customer may be completely unknown to what the FX desk knows about a customer, which may be completely unknown to what the commodities or M&A division, for that matter, is. So, you know, there's still huge amounts of, of area to hollow out and improve uh, before we, you know, we even scratch the surface of what's possible in, in data science, let alone artificial intelligence and machine learning. I can't believe I'm having a conversation about data science and artificial intelligence. But there you go. <laughs> um, okay, you've trodden, you've trodden onto one of my uh, carefully planted claymores there. Um, you mentioned cross-asset class. Now, I have um, been listening to the dream for 17 years now, and there's been a couple of banks have got close to a true cross-asset class platform. Um, you know, the awards tonight will actually highlight the one we think is number one. Um, but generally speaking, I've seen it still a siloed approach. Are we finally breaking down the silos, do you think? And I guess maybe a supplementary to that would be, is it easier for a regional bank to break down those silos than actually a global giant that's been building these behemoths in the, in eFIC for a decade or more? Uh, well, the simple answer to that is yes, because the smaller you are, the more likely it is that everybody on um, in, the, in the dealing room on different desks knows pretty much the same customer. And in fact, in very small banks, the head of FX is going to be the head of fixed income, uh, is also moonlighting as the head of trading and also the head of sales and also the head of treasury and also making the tea and doing the birthday cakes. But never the head head of compliance. But never the head of (laughs) compliance. (laughs) Quite so. Um, And indeed, I was in a trading room of a Scandinavian bank um, not that long ago, who shall remain nameless, 
uh, and my host pointed out the FX desk and the fixed income desk, and then pointed over to the private wealth desk uh, with the words, and those guys are the really super, and girls, are the really super intelligent ones because they're expected to know about all the asset classes. Mm. Because the private wealth clients are generally wealthy for a reason, they're generally smart, they generally need to be spoken to in a smart way. And therefore, the brightest and the best from the universities with the MBAs go and sit on that desk because they absolutely have to know about everything. So I looked at him and thought, okay, and then looked at the other desks, sort of with the implied implication that there were a set of dinosaurs sitting <laughs> elsewhere on the spot desk. And the, um, Six orangutans yeah, sitting around the desk exactly. on the phone, yeah. <laughs> yeah, scratching various parts of the anatomy. Um, but the, 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 the truth is that as the banks you know, affect this, um, not just the MIFID things, but the, all the Basel instructions, and they start looking at ALM and all these kinds of measures, Clearly, what's important is not the product organization of the bank, but actually the amount of inventory they have or the amount of capacity they have in their balance sheet uh, to shift inventory out to the customer. So it's a question of what can we, you know, how much risk can we take? How do we break that down by uh, customer? How do we break that down by product? So inevitably, there's more of a focus on the customer than there is on the differentiation in the product. And that in itself, uh, drives um, a greater focus on on the human interaction with the customer uh, being highly thoughtful, highly interactive, highly structured, and, and clearly highly cross-asset class. And then the third reason that brings about this shift, um, and I agree, it's you know it takes time for the Titanic to turn, and mm. you, Colin, said it was you know, 17 years that you've been looking at it, uh, is simply um, that... Very high volume, high margin customers are probably connected to the bank via an API. Yeah. The very low volume customers uh, or, or with low or little profit are, are being invited to go elsewhere or um, sit at the end of a telephone line to a call center. And there's only a, you know, the tail is, is gone. The, the, the front end is being coped with by APIs. And the, the rump in the middle is being squeezed. And to the extent that any human beings are left in a thoughtful, structured uh, sales process, they're likely to be uh, the clever MBA equipped ones um, who can whiz their way through a balance sheet and make all sorts of proactive suggestions, uh, as opposed to waiting for the telephone ring uh, to ring, you know, along with the deal flow on a Monday morning. Mm. I still have a problem, though, with this idea that, you know, you made a point there about high volume customers and low volume customers, but... There are high-volume customers who are low-volume in other products. Yeah. And this, I think, has been the challenge for the this cross-asset class nirvana that people have been chasing, or certain people have been chasing for some time. What actually tweaked my interest there was when you sort of mentioned that private wealth structured products thing. Because it strikes me that that's probably the area you're going to have to reach back from if you're going to develop a true cross-asset class um, trading business and trading platform. Yeah will have to come from that private wealth division that, as you say, is looking across everything. Well, the mentality of the people who will staff the new sales desk are definitely drawn from that sort of uh, existing mentality. Um, but equally, the role for technology here is to assist the internal salesperson, not just around the workflow aspects of trading on behalf of. Uh, and an example of that would be hooking up to, you know, having the presentation of the the portal that the internal salesperson is looking at hooked up to both um, CRM systems, 
So, you know, for social reasons, they know what the counterpart's golf handicap is and there can be a little <laughs> chit-chat at the, at the front of the call. Uh, but importantly, diarising things like forward transactions, they may have won or missed out on a bit of business 90 days ago, knowing that the roll or the, or, the, um, or the settlement will be taking place 90 days hence. So having things like that popping up um, to, to remind a salesperson to make a proactive suggestion uh, is all important. But also... Uh, you know, just as I when I go to the, on the thankfully rare occasions to see the GP um, and explain my symptoms. Thought you were going to say the gym there. <laughs> come, come. Um, uh, the GP invariably, you know, starts googling the symptoms um, as a as a diagnostic aid uh, to the advice that uh, that they're then going to give me and to inform the prescription. And similarly, I see the single dealer. Portal stroke, portal stroke platform being an aid memoir for the salesperson to talk through with the client what the various products are on offer. You know, what is the difference between a time option, a forward, an option, um, uh, an average rate option? You know, all those things could be possibly argued solving a business problem of risk managing a forward um, financial commitment. But the exact detail and contrast between the two of them might be something that might not be on the tip of the tongue of the salesperson that particular morning, mm. um, but but they could work through with the client by reference to what's going on on the screen. So yeah, I think um, I think technology plays its role. And again, to the original point of your question, I think the mentality of the person doing that role is only going to increase. So if anything, it'll enhance the reputation, uh, but also required skill set. Uh, of the salespeople who are taking those jobs. At a later date, we will come back to the issues of where they're going to get liquidity for all these clever products they're coming up with because my fear from listening to that is that we end up with um, a bunch of salespeople relying too heavily on technology and we also have a market structure wherein liquidity is manufactured um, according to a certain set of plans and that makes it very homogeneous and frankly means it will disappear the minute things get a bit tricky but i think that's subject for another podcast because we've only got 30 minutes for this one yeah. we could go on for an hour on that one but, but i think just briefly to touch on that i think the likely outcome in the short to medium term is that what will happen is the the thing that's being sold will end up being some form of a structure the yeah. component parts of which are very palatable to the regulator very easy to price very easy to risk manage but the way they're stitched together has some degree of proprietary or bank-specific branding on it. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's how it'll get done. I guess my other fear on that is that we end up with, in this private world structured product cross-asset world, we end up with too many investment decisions being driven by um, technology. And my fear then becomes you just end up with a bunch of crowded trades. It, well, if... If what you're ending up doing is actually trying to overcomplicate the process, that would be true. Yeah. As it is, I think there are there's a new generation of, of treasurers coming onto the scene, far more savvy with technology, far less seasoned with being on the receiving end of, of, of bank hospitality and relationship <laughs> management. Uh, and actually, the more that's put on the screen, the more the more that will be consumed by people who... You know, just expecting to to receive ideas and suggestions and, and and content like that. Yeah, something else I wanted to talk to you about actually was you know we had a brief five minutes in the true spirit of in the thick of it we had a five minute preparation rather than three hour. <laughs> um, but something we we touched on briefly in just when we sort of first met up was around the mobile piece because 
Um, it strikes me we've got quite a, a bifurcation between the top end of the market and the regional players because my instincts around mobile is, you know, this year I was shown three mobile apps that allow trading. Um, content, absolutely. But then we can get con- anyone can get content on their mobile device. But actual trading, there were three apps I was shown by three institutions that offered, you know, order management, notifications, and, and live trading. Your experience, albeit in a slightly different area, is different. Uh well, if you'd asked us two years ago, and in fact, when we spoke about it at conferences two years ago, mobile was um, was the work of the devil. It was a regulator's nightmare. It was a trader having a too few many beers, um, going through a tunnel on the way home nightmare. Everything about it was was horrific. Um, meanwhile, retail banks were putting mobile apps out so people could, with a great degree of facility, check their current accounts and do payments from 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 one to another very very easily and the use case you know you're right i think has been uh, for mobile with this regulatory caution in mind uh, has been around reducing some of the admin workload of the sales desk certainly in post-trade mode so yes order amendments and notifications and looking at watch lists um, have all been useful things but definitely trading is on the up and particularly in the regional banks, where there's a higher probability that the corporate treasurer will have his or her personal banking arrangements with the very bank that's providing them with corporate treasury services, their expectation is, well, I've got this superb retail app you know, to check my current account or see where I am with my mortgage. Um, why is it I can't look at my risk positions and my order positions on a mobile device from the very same bank with the very same branding? So for sure, in the regional banks, we're seeing quite a uh, an arms race in who can be first in a particular region to get proper uh, treasury services equipped on the mobile. And the other point on mobile is, of course, in the emerging markets where there's a higher proportion of smaller employees per enterprise, there's a good chance that the treasurer is either an owner-manager in the business or is actually out with the out in the warehouse with a picking list or down on the key supervising uh, loadings or receipts of uh, goods or whatever. Uh, and that person does not want to go back to an office and sit at a desktop uh, and fiddle around with um, administrative processes or getting all the documentation together to support the foreign exchange transaction. So, you know, again, uh, we made this, uh, I made this point earlier in the po- podcast, but necessity is the mother of invention. And to satisfy the needs of that demographic, and so typically in emerging markets, um, their mobile is it's almost as if desktop applications have been leapfrogged altogether and people are going from voice directly to, to mobile processing. So it's definitely a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, I guess, that, you know, if you look at those markets, a lot of them, you know, the markets they may wish to trade and make payments in are not open uh, during their time zone. You know, I mean, someone wishing to do exactly. something in, yeah. in, with you know, with Canada in, in Asia yeah. is probably sitting there going, well, I'm going to be doing this at home. Do I, yes. I have the choice of sitting in the office. And I do, I mean, I, th- I like what I'm hearing there because one of my long beefs with the FX industry, the banking industry, has been around mobile because I look at it and think people are always in meetings. You know, they're always going to see clients. You know, everyone stresses, oh, it's all about the client. It's all about the client. We spend time on the phone to the client, talking to the client. Well, Guess what? You need you still need access to what's going on because you could go from one client meeting to another, especially if you're on the road. You need what are you going to do in between? You're going to check yeah. where markets are to make sure things happening. Yeah. 
how can your clients not have access to that? So I I think it's good. It's interesting that the regional banks seem to be leading the way. The retail end of the spectrum needs to be leading the way. Um, do you consider then mobile to be one of the big growth areas going forward in that sort of tier two, tier one? Definitely. Uh, but it's important in saying that to acknowledge that when, when we say mobile, we don't just mean sticking an app or a, or a mm. screen rendered onto a mobile device. We're talking about tablets and we're talking about genuinely mobile devices where we're not just, as I said, putting a screen, a desktop screen on renderings on a mobile device, but we're taking advantage of swiping and buttons and um, swipe yeah. ups and sweep lefts and all the rest of it. So, yeah, device-specific things uh, and also making just the finger controls and the data entry easier so there are pre-selected drop-downs and wheels and spinners and things um, to make the actual access of the device you know, a whole lot easier. But no, it's definitely a it's definitely a thing. And you know, with that said, um, I think that some of the very big banks would report they're seeing a huge amount of um, deal flow already on mobile devices. Yeah. I think I heard Velocity claiming that about 25% of their flow on, on Velocity, uh, sorry, Citibank saying that up to 25% on their flow on Velocity was um, was attributable to mobile devices in some shape or form. Mm, yeah, and, and JP Morgan are there as well. Morgan Stanley are coming up. It's yeah. just, for me at the moment, it just falls off a cliff there. And I think it's a question of when that does change around. So um, moving into the post-trade, in the, the article in P&L Q2, um, I'm just going to quote something back at you now, obviously, just to make you nervous. Despite the focus on cutting-edge technology, post-trade services are still woefully archaic in many places with a heavy reliance on manual data entry and re-keying significant quick and re-keying, sorry. You talk then about significant quick wins. Where are they? To the extent that people have automated their process and done things to um, improve electronic distribution, uh, post-trade has typically been the last area of new technology development. And very simple things currently are done by many banks in a very inefficient and hugely labor-intensive way. So post-trade confirmations, um, post-trade remission of settlement instructions, for example, uh, with all the um, error and re-king opportunities that can be put into there, could can, e can easily be improved and addressed. Um, and of course, it's it's often that point of contact that the customer has with the bank. It's all the fiddly post-trade stuff mm. uh, that it really informs um, what, what's going on. So a dissatisfied clerk in the Treasury Department may easily communicate to uh, the head of uh, the head of treasury that well dealing with such and such a bank is an absolute nightmare because you know we're constantly having to wait hours and hours and hours before this stuff can or, you know the paperwork can be done whereas this bank has got this super new slick system and my goodness they're so much easy easy to deal with so you know as a as one of my first managers in ibm told me many decades ago um, think not about the most important person who can organize in an organization who can win you some business uh, in a sales situation, but actually think about the most junior person who can lose you the business. And obviously, it's, it, it's well, often it's looking after the back office clerical staff of the clients uh, that is a, an, an important but under-attended part of the service that a bank provides. Mm. And I, I, I guess from my point there, it's I, I followed the journey of UBS, um, who until I think they were the first to win a gold 
uh, prize, a gold PL Digital FX award for 10 years in a row. And it was for their post trade yeah. works. And it's always been around that sort of workflow automation. And in more recent years, there's a greater use of robots. Yes. I think that will that will continue, but it strikes me what you're saying there is actually it's also about the people supporting that process. It is about the people supporting the process, and and, and it also reflects um, certainly in the in the regions amongst the super regionals and um, uh, and the, uh, and the national banks. I would say um, the very very large banks, who I guess are the major subject of the survey that you conducted, yeah. Colin, are really the very large banks. You know, hugely equipped with all this kind of stuff, and they have the means to win post-trade awards 10 years in a row just because they've got very smart people and bags of money and they can really spend time thinking about this. My point is that the the fall-off from the, the very large banks, i.e. the haves, to the, not necessarily the have-nots, but the haven't quite got so much, you know, is a lot higher up the food chain than people mm. think. Yep. Uh, and there's, you know, plenty of room for those, uh, for, for improvements to be brought to bear in that size of bank. Well, it strikes me, I mean, if you, I mean, just, I guess just to close out, looking at this sort of divide, such as it is between the very top tier banks and regional players, to your point, there's actually um, a significant middle tier that I see is being screened, and they're actually in the media at the moment due to heavy job cuts yeah. of these institutions. Um, it strikes me what they're doing, you know, these job cuts are coming around because they are trying to modernize their business, and they're looking finally to technology. Is this your experience? It is, although on the way, I think they've lost some good people by simply not yeah. valuing what it is that they do. I think yeah. the management science around e-commerce is in its infancy, and so some very smart people have been let go simply because management doesn't understand what contribution they've been me- been making. Um, actually, I think it was I remember uh, seeing UBS in the early zeros who took the innovative view that sales commissions should be identical regardless of whether the trade was executed on the phone or on the screen. Mm. That sort of forward thinking was relatively rare then, uh, and there's still a little bit of it that's rare today. Um, but, but nonetheless, um, I think the technological advance, you know, whereas FX led the way in e-commerce in the early zeros, what we're seeing now is the heads of equities picking up the mission for um, e-commerce because they're used to the symbology and the huge volumes of transactions uh, and, and organizational structures and technology structures that, that have been prevalent in, in the equities market. We're seeing that coming into FX and fixed income to a greater extent. Um, and that's driving, after all, or you might say at long last, a premium on people who've got e-commerce skills and understand what e-trading is all about and understanding what e-distribution is all about. What concerns me with that, though, is that these people are not bringing a knowledge of the market structure in FX, which is, as I think has been proven over the years, radically different to that in equities especially. Yes, I I agree. So we'll see from there. Okay, well, that will be us for this session. Uh, John and I are off for a pre-season cricket net, for those of you that understand the great game. And and those of you who don't. (laughs) Exactly. And we will uh, obviously be incapable of movement or speech for two days afterwards. (laughs) Thanks very much for listening. Um, I hope everybody enjoys the awards that are coming along tonight. Um, The piece from uh, John Ashworth, CEO of Captain Systems, is available in this issue of P&L, which will be given out in goodie bags tonight and be on the desks of all good institutions this time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Great. Thanks, Colin. And thanks for inviting me. Thanks, John.